to VBAC Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after caesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own VBAC journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is VBAC Birth Stories. Hi everyone, today Steph and I chat to Zara from Central Queensland about her two births. Zara's VBAC journey began with Darcy, who was a planned caesarean due to his breech positioning. The caesarean itself wasn't traumatic, but it was what happened afterwards that left Zara feeling like she could not go through childbirth again. She experienced postnatal depression following this birth. Zara's heart eventually opened to the possibility of having another baby, and when the time came, she felt a deep desire to have a VBAC, doing everything in her power to give herself the best opportunity, including securing continuity of care through her local hospital's midwifery group practice program. The end of Zara's pregnancy presented some challenges, which Zara admirably rose to. But once labour was underway, Zara experienced what we all are aware of going into labour after caesarean, but feel hopeful won't happen to us, a uterine rupture. A uterine rupture can occur in any labour, but it is more common in women who have had a scar on their uterus from a previous caesarean. We are told 1 in 200 or 0.5% of women labouring after one caesarean will have a uterine rupture, which means about 99.5% of women won't. There have been other studies that have found the uterine rupture rate to be even lower, for example 0.2% and 0.1%. An Australian study, Decker et al. 2010, went even further and found that the risk of uterine rupture during a VBAC was 0.15% in spontaneous labour, increasing to 0.88% in an induced labour and 1.91% in an augmented labour. Of the women who do experience a uterine rupture, 6% of those are considered catastrophic. So 94% are considered asymptomatic. And this is what Zara experienced. You'll hear how Lewis's birth unfolded and how uterine rupture presented for her and her feelings throughout the experience. Zara, Steph and I want to thank you so much for your honesty in sharing your personal story and for drawing awareness to the emotional complexity of caesarean sections and the reality of healing from these experiences. Thank you also for sharing your honest feelings about breastfeeding and your wisdom in coping with birth trauma. If you would like to connect with Zara on social media, you can. We have popped her Instagram handle in the show notes, as well as links to the aforementioned studies. We hope you enjoy this episode of VBAC Birth Stories. Today we are with Zara. Thank you so much, Zara, for joining us today to share your very important story. Would you like to start my baby telling us just a little bit about yourself? So I'm Zara and I'm from central Queensland. I am a mum of two little boys, Darcy and Lou, and my husband, Bryce. I'm a primary trained teacher. So that's my my job when I'm not being a stay-at-home mum. 
Darcy is two and a bit. He'll be three in September and Lou is five months. Before you fell pregnant with Darcy, did you have any preconceived ideas about birth and pregnancy or any thoughts about how you would like your birth to go? I never really was interested in having children until I was. It sort of was not something I'd ever thought about. You know, I was maybe I'll have kids one day. I wasn't too fussed if I did or didn't the time came and it was sort of like once we we were thinking about having children and then the next minute I was pregnant. <laughs> so mum had twins and unfortunately lost them because they were born extremely early and then had my brother and myself all naturally. So I guess that's just how I thought birth happened. Yeah, I didn't really know many people who'd had C-sections or if they had, they didn't really talk a whole lot about it and there wasn't a whole lot of information about it. Do you want to tell us about Darcy's pregnancy? So Darcy happened really quickly. A switch flicked. My brain thought let's get pregnant. We were and we're so so lucky. So once I was pregnant we went to the doctor. I remember her mentioning to me about the MGP. The doctor said to me you're young, you're healthy, you know, you've got no risk factors. I just don't see any reason for you to need the MGP. I didn't know any better. So I sort of just said, okay, no worries. We're happy to go with shared care. Never saw that doctor again, <laughs> just purely by coincidence. But thinking about it now, reflecting on that conversation, I'm like, oh, that's actually really disappointing because they like dangled in front of me and said, hey, there's this thing that you can have, but you're perfectly healthy and you're perfectly fine and you'll probably have the perfectly normal pregnancy and labour. Don't worry about it. You don't need that. Did you have any complications in your first pregnancy or was there any any concerns there? I think it was about 28 weeks. I'd been having this really weird pain in my back and it was one afternoon after work. Pain was just excruciating and my husband was calling the hospital saying to them, you know, like my wife's in tears. She's like crippled over on the bed in pain. What, what do we do? We went up to the hospital that night and they were sort of like, oh, we think maybe it's a UTI. We're not really sure, but the pain had gone away by then. They checked on Bub. We had some monitoring done and then they discovered that he was transverse. So they said to me, we're suspecting that maybe he's laying on your kidneys and that's what's causing the pain, like just pushing on them and you're not emptying your bowel you're not emptying them frequently enough or enough and that's what's causing the pain so we went away and they were like we're going to send you for a proper scan we did that scan he was laying transverse and they saw that he had a head laying like resting pretty much on one and his feet pushed into my other kidney there's a name for it I can't remember what it is but essentially he was just he was pushing on them and they weren't draining enough and that's what was causing pain at 32 weeks I had a midwife appointment and I'd said to her in the past, I'd had two LETS procedures. So did this affect your pregnancy in any way, having had the LETS procedures? So I think the problem was because my second LETS procedure was the next step up is like a cone biopsy where they take like a cone shape out of, out of your cervix. So it was like not that bad, but a little bit more than a LETS procedure, if that makes sense. So they were worried about the, that my cervix would stay intact. At 32 weeks, I had sort of said like, has anybody checked this? 
I'm just a little bit interested to know if things are still going okay there because it was in my file and I'd mentioned it, but nobody had really checked to make sure the length of my cervix was okay. And so they were like, well, it's a bit, it's very late on in your pregnancy to be checking that. But if you're concerned about it, we will. So we went and had a scan at 32 weeks where we discovered that bulb was breech. My cervix was very long and healthy. And so there was no problem there, but bulb was breech. So I went into panic because a breech baby, I don't know what that means. How do we fix it? first of all and as I know a lot of women on here have talked about breech babies they just kept saying don't worry about it don't worry about it don't worry about it it's fine baby's turn baby's turn I had people say to me oh my baby was breech I went into labor flipped right around don't even stress about it <laughs> I know what you mean because I also had the same feeling like people were like oh we breech is breech is going to turn but my babies didn't turn you know, <laughs> yeah. we went straight into spinning babies. I was upside down for like the last six weeks of my pregnancy. I think there was just a part of me that was like, if he's not moving, this is where he must need to be. Like, this is where he wants to be. And I suspect that perhaps being a year one teacher and spending a whole lot of time on tiny little chairs and and in weird positions that maybe that had some sort of like, you know, that can't help. I know now after my second pregnancy that it can definitely affect how your baby is positioned by the way you're sitting. I had started preparing myself that a C-section might be what we needed to do because my hospital didn't offer breech births. And I wasn't sure that I was comfortable with the breech birth anyway, because being my first baby, it just seemed even more scary with yeah. how many complications can arise. So they started to offer me an ECV and it didn't sit right with me. It was just my gut instinct and it just, somehow I just knew. I think that he's where he needs to be and that we're just destined to have a C-section to get him out safely. Maybe a couple of days after that, the doctor said to me, look, an ECV is an extremely effective procedure I can't see any reason why this won't work for you. And then you can go ahead and have a perfectly natural birth. And I was like, okay, all right, let's do it. I, and against my better judgment, you know, after talking to my husband, I was like, yeah, all right. It might give us a chance to have bub vaginally. Like, let's just see what happens. So we booked it in a couple of days later and we went into the ECV and this big man walks in. Like, <laughs> this big man. <laughs> me. This doctor has like a 98% success rate. Like he does not fail with ECVs. He prides himself on being able to turn babies. And I said to him, okay, good luck. Because I don't think that you're going to move him. Like, I just don't think you will. They went through the ECV and he tried and he tried and he tried and they they turn, they get him like a quarter of a turn and he'd just flip right back and they'd get him a quarter of a turn and he'd flip right back. And he said to me, at any time, you can tell me to stop. It was excruciating. Like, it was just so uncomfortable. And every time he tried to move, move him, I said to him, I can feel that he's not going anywhere. This doctor was so disappointed. He, he walked out of there. He goes, I'm, I'm going to give you a minute to talk about whether you want to come back tomorrow and try again, because I know I can move this baby. So he left the room 
and I was in tears and I just said to my husband I can't do that again I can't do it that was horrible it was the worst feeling of like just I just felt manhandled you know and so he came back in and I said to him I'm not coming back tomorrow I I can't do that again I'm just done and I felt so disappointed in myself because part of me just knew that it wasn't going to work that there was a reason why Bob was where he was and I always said he just likes to be close to mummy's heart that's what it is he just likes to be close turns out he was not a needy baby at all but part of me I was like maybe (laughs) it's a nice way to think about it anyway (laughs) but I just knew so I just said to him look I'm not interested in having another procedure done we'll just book in the c-section tell them to give me a call when they're ready to book in a date good to go the lady said oh oh, you know we'll book you in for the 9th of October and I'm like okay so that was two weeks later that was I think I would have been 40 weeks and the lady ended the call and she said oh (laughs) unless you have the baby tomorrow and I laughed and I said no that's not possible because it's my husband's birthday And she laughed and we laughed and we hung up the phone. Anyway, we went out to dinner that night and we were celebrating my husband's birthday and I sat through dinner and I just felt awful. Like I just, I couldn't eat. I peed 150 times while we were out. And as we left to go out for dinner, I said to my husband, I just feel really odd. I can't put my finger on it. And he offered to stay home and I said, no, no, it's fine. We'll go out. So we went out. And then got home. I didn't sleep at all that night. I just, I just still felt really, really strange. I hadn't had any contractions. Anyway, that next morning, it was my husband's birthday and we woke up and we did gifts and I jumped in the shower and I said to him, I'm having some period pain. That doesn't seem normal. And I was 38 weeks. That's interesting because this period pain's kind of moving up my belly in some sort of like, like contraction nah no we're okay we're okay so about an hour went by and then I said to him these are getting pretty hairy maybe we should start to time them just to see by this time my husband was running around the house (laughs) he was packing bags he'd gone to the petrol station he was absolutely flipping out he's like we're having this baby today I can't believe it and I was sitting on the bed going it's not happening today don't worry about it. Like, it's fine. Meanwhile, like, contractions stopping me in my tracks. Like, no, no, oh, no. Wow. <laughs> he called, we called the hospital and I told them. And they, they said the usual, oh, listen, just, you know, stay at home. We'll see you in a little while when you're ready to come up to the hospital. And I said, well, actually, my baby's breech. So what about that? And they're like, oh, yeah, grab your bags. Like, you should probably come up here right away. So we did. They put me on the CTG monitor and they kept coming back in and out and it was taking a really long time, but they weren't really telling me anything. And then one lady said to me, darling, you're just not in labor. And I'm like, I'm sitting here like having contractions. I'm feeling these contractions and they're getting worse. And she's saying to me, look, we're just not picking up any contractions. And then another lady came in a little while later and she goes, oh, maybe we'll just adjust the CTG monitor because my belly was so tiny they couldn't get it to sit properly on my belly so after a little jiggle they came back in like 10 minutes and she goes oh oh my goodness yeah you're really having contractions there 
you're having a baby today. And I'm like, this is what we've been trying to tell you. I've been sitting here for like an hour and a half. Like they decided to check me. So I had only been having contractions for probably two, two and a half hours by now. And I was two and a bit centimetres dilated. So meanwhile, I think I mentioned it's my husband's birthday and we're just there like, what? We're having a baby today? (laughs) Are you serious? And I think we probably asked about 40 times, like, are you sure we're having a baby today? Are you sure? And everybody's saying to us, yes, we're sure. Like they're they're prepping me for surgery, putting cannulas in, and we're still saying like, are you sure? We're really doing this today? So they prepped us for surgery. I guess I knew about a C-section and I kind of knew what to expect, but it's it's such an eerie feeling walking into a c-section you know I'm, I'm in labor and it's like okay we're just going in to cut a baby out like I guess leading up to it that's not something that I had had a whole lot of time to think about yet because we had only the day before decided like yep that's what's happening we're having a c-section but then all of a sudden it was there and it was like this roller coaster of emotions like I'm 38 weeks pregnant a baby's coming down my husband's birthday and it was just all a lot all at once they did the spinal and it worked really quickly so just to prepare you it might take a really long time to wear off because apparently they said that if it works quickly it can take a longer time to wear off so Darcy was eventually born and they held him up and the poor little bub he had both of those legs stuck right up in the air and like a good probably for the next day for his legs to relax down and stretch out it's just it's incredible to see the pictures they were just like stuck up on his chest his two little legs because he was in such a weird position inside of me for so long so he was Um, frank frank breach right yeah yeah so he came out and he was okay They, they brought him over to me and i met him really quickly and then they took him away again and after a few minutes one of the midwives said look, I think that he has some fluid on his lungs and we want to take him to special care and we want to give him some oxygen. And at the time, all I remember thinking was, like, Bryce, Bryce, you just need to go, my husband. I'm like, you just need to go. If that's where he needs to be, just go. And it didn't at the time feel scary or hard because it's what needed to happen. So I met him briefly for maybe 30 seconds and then he got taken out of the room and went on oxygen. So then I went through to recovery and it was just such a, it was just such a weird feeling to have just gone through all of this ordeal and to be sitting there without my baby. And I was confused because I was like, okay, I get that he needed to have special care but I felt like because of all the the drugs and the adrenaline that I was just kind of like floating on top of my body just like watching things and like talking to me like ask this question say this ask this but not being able to vocalize it because I was it felt like I was frozen so they've taken me to recovery and alone sitting there this this nurse came over to me and they wheeled this other girl in by my side and I was really 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 emotional as you can imagine just having had a baby and he's not with me 
And she comes in and she just whispers to me and she goes, this poor girl next to you, she just had a DNC for a miscarriage. And I was like, why? Why would you come in here and tell me that? Like what, what part of that feels okay to you to come in here and tell me that this poor girl next to me is going through that? And I just looked at her and I said, the sooner you can get me out of here, the better. Unfortunately, it did take a really long time for my spinal to wear off and I was in recovery for quite a long time. I just felt like I just couldn't be there for another second. It was just the worst feeling to be sitting there knowing what I knew about this girl next to me, knowing what I knew about my baby being without me and just wanting to be anywhere but where I was. And eventually she said to me, look, I think that it's worn off enough, probably not as much as we'd like it to, but we'll send you back to your room. They had told me that he was out of special care. They had told me that he was okay. And I just said to her, like, I just want to go. I just want to be with my baby. And so she let me go and I went up to the ward. And when I got there, the midwife came in to me and she said, look, we just really would like it if you rested. And I was like, okay, but I've just been in recovery for like two hours. So I'm pretty well rested. Where's my baby? And she said, look, we're just going to keep him in special care just for a little bit more. And you, you just get, get some rest, just keep resting. I mean, I, I guess at the time it was like, it felt like they, they had my best interests at heart. It was like, okay, they just want me to rest. But all I wanted was my baby. And I just kept saying, I just want my baby. I just want you to bring me my baby. And I'm saying to my husband, like, where is he? Why, why aren't they bringing him to me? And then occasionally I'd drift off to sleep and then I'd wake up and I'd be like, where's my baby? Why haven't you brought me my baby? So he was born at 11.22 and they brought him into me at nearly 4 p.m. I just remember looking at him being like, all this time has gone by and he's been with my husband or, you know, in the special care. And I just felt so sad. And that night I was sitting there with my husband and, I think like the gravity of it all hit me and he was laying on a pillow in front of me and I looked at my husband and I said you have to do this now this is this is it we have to do this and he sort of looked at me scared like are you okay and I said to him this has all just been a lot and now now we have to do this I was sore and I was stuck in bed and to pick up my baby, I needed to buzz a nurse or have my husband do it. I couldn't change a nappy. I couldn't move anywhere. I just spent four hours like pining for my baby. What have we done? Like that's how it felt at the time. It was just such a scary moment for a lot of reasons because it feels like you're the worst person in the world for having those thoughts but also because it's just so overwhelming and you've got so many drugs still running through your system and it's just a whole lot going on. And yeah, I remember my husband saying like, I, like, are you okay? Do we need, 
like, do we need to get help kind of thing? And, and then I just snapped out of it in a second and I went, no, I'm fine. It's going to be fine. And it was like something clicked inside of me that went, you don't have a choice now. This is what you're doing. You're just going to pick yourself up and you're going to keep going. And that's what we did. I went home the next day. I said to them, I can't stay here for a second longer. I need to go home. And they sent me home. And that was probably the best thing that I could have done because being in that hospital room after everything we'd been through was just way too much for me. How did breastfeeding go? He had formula as his first feed while he was in special care. And then when they brought him to me, we had our first feed and he latched fine. I remember the nurses were quite good. Most of them were very gentle with the breastfeeding thing. It wasn't something that I was particularly looking forward to. Even the prenatal expressing, that was quite strange to me. So I was nervous that breastfeeding wasn't going to be something that I enjoyed. And the nurses were really good about it because I kept saying to them, like, I just, uh, I'm not excited about this. It doesn't feel right. Like I want to do it, but it just, it just didn't feel right to me. So they were really supportive. So we got home, we attempted breastfeeding for five weeks. I had three bouts of mastitis in the first five weeks and after my c-section I lost about 13 kilos which there wasn't a whole lot of me left to be losing 13 kilos so I got to five weeks and I went to see my GP because I had what I thought was an infection in my scar and I walked into my GP and she just looked at me and she was like what's happened and I and I was sort of like oh I don't know what do you mean what happened and she said to me, you're just, you're fading away. Like, what? Why, why have you lost so much weight? What's going on? And I just broke down crying because I'd spent the last five weeks barely being able to get up off the couch without head spins, like holding myself up on walls because I had no energy and I just felt depleted of everything. And I was just so sick for the whole five weeks. I said to her, I just feel like the C-section breastfeeding, mastitis, it's all just sucked the life out of me and I've got nothing left and I was an absolute mess and she just printed out a prescription for pills to stop my milk and she looked at me and she said, it will be okay if you don't do this anymore and you are no good to anybody the way you are. It was the first time I'd even considered not breastfeeding it hadn't even crossed my mind that it wouldn't be something that I did because we'd been persisting for five weeks and so she gave me the pill and she said take it home think about it if you want to come back and talk about getting yourself back on track like putting on weight and persisting with the breastfeeding make another appointment for a couple of days time and come back and see me otherwise you can take the pill you can stop your milk and you can see how you go and after 24 hours of tears, I took the pill and I stopped my milk. And it was the best decision we could have made because it was not until I didn't have him attached to me 24-7 that I realised that it was just sucking the happiness out of me. And I had just been through so much that I was like, oh, I just took this big, deep breath. And it's, it just felt like I could move on. But yeah, I had a long struggle with postnatal depression after having Darcy and just uh, not having that initial connection with him I think that really affected 
my ability to to feed him my connection with him in general in the in the beginning because I think I know now those first moments with your baby are so 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 important Mm. and a couple of the nurses had said to me this isn't it you don't have to have another c-section if you decide to have another baby you don't have to do it again but I wasn't even ready to consider that I would ever do it again because I was like that's I'm not doing it that's it for me I'm not going through any of that ever again because it all felt like too much once you were able to let go I suppose of that feeling as though you had to breastfeed you said that was a weight lifted off your shoulders where did you go from there were you able to get any help for PND or were you able to look at other ways to forge that bond with Darcy I didn't seek any professional help I made it my life my life's mission that I was going to just do better and sort it out so I started a blog which I haven't blogged for a really long time but I started a blog and I let it all out and I guess that's why I stopped because it kind of got to the point where I was like I've said it all and it's all out and it was it felt better to say it all I think Darcy was probably about six months old when I did that and I just started working on myself and I think that that bond with Darcy just started happening naturally over time I think when you have your first baby, a lot of people experience that pushback, that grief of their old life. That fourth trimester is really hard because you're grieving a life that you used to have. You're going through recovery for whatever that looks like. You've got this new baby who relies on you and you're still trying to keep your house maintained and your relationship maintained and it's just a lot. So I think in those first four months, I was like, this is, this is it. I'm never, ever, ever going to want to feel like having another baby. I am not doing this again. And I said it out loud hundreds of times. I'm never doing this again. (laughs) I think we've all had those moments. I think we still have those moments where we look up and think you would have to be mad to do this again. But (laughs) but somehow biology takes over. So what happened for you following that postpartum period and what changed your mind? So Darcy was a year old and biology took over. (laughs) (laughs) My ovaries started screaming. I think that I'd been able to let go of so much that had sort of held me back from Darcy's birth and that I could kind of just relax on it a little bit and think like, I know it's not going to happen now because we're not ready, but my heart's open to it. So we had a wedding planned in Vegas for April of 2020. And our plan was that after the wedding, we were like, okay, well, that's, that's our goal. I don't want to be pregnant in Vegas. (laughs) that's great incentive (laughs) and that was our goal we just knew that once because obviously that had been planned for a long time that you know when that was all said and done we would start trying for another baby and then the world happened yes we didn't get to go to Vegas obviously but we undenied and we we were like do we do it now that the world's where it is or do we wait? And it was one of those moments where we were sort of like, we've been waiting for this one thing, this one event for, you know, two years, pretty much. We don't want to wait anymore. So we've made the decision that, yeah, we were just going to 
start trying and see what happened. Yeah. Even the world was a total mess and <laughs> we had no idea what a pregnancy or a birth would look like. COVID baby. Yeah, he very much was. <laughs> so you fell pregnant with Lewis. How did you feel when you fell pregnant with him? Was it a surprise or, or how are you feeling? We were fortunate again that falling with Louis happened pretty quickly. I think the first thing that my mind thought after I saw the positive pregnancy test was I'm having a vaginal birth this time. And I would have been like two minutes pregnant, I swear, because, (laughs) you know, when when you're trying and take that test like way too early, I would have been about two minutes pregnant. And I was like, I'm not having another C-section. I can't do it. Was it that you thought, I don't want to be separated from my baby again? For you, what was the hardest part of that first birth experience? The biggest contributor to me wanting to have a VBAC was exactly that. I wanted to be the first person to lay hands on my baby. I wanted to bring him up on my chest. I wanted to smell his little head. I was going to pull him out. I was going to be the one who took him out, like nobody else touch him. That was my plan. I just had this overwhelming desire not to have a vaginal birth but just that I wanted that connection with my baby right away and it meant more to me to hold him and have him than I could ever explain like thinking about this tiny little baby in my belly and I was like I'm gonna be the first person in this world that you know because that's my job as a mum. That's what it felt like. I'm his mum. That's what it should be. I should be the first person that he meets when he comes into the world. So I set out on a quest, (laughs) as most of the mums who come on this podcast do. It actually started with you guys. You guys were the first reference for me when I started looking into having my VBAC and I started religiously listening to podcasts on here and just doing all of my research and went to see my GP second baby I was probably like nine weeks along by then (laughs) we weren't in any rush to go see the doctor and I said to her I'm gonna have a VBAC and she was like okay cool like it didn't mean very much to my GP at the time because she's like I'm not delivering your baby but that's cool go ahead do it and everybody I could talk to anybody who would listen I would tell them that I'm having a VBAC. I would tell them why and how important it was to me. And to me, it felt like if I put it out into the universe hard and fast, that maybe it gives me more of a chance to bring it to fruition. You know, I said to my GP, I want to be in the MGP program and I need it because after my birth with Darcy and I'm having a VBAC, I need continuity of care. I need it. She, and she said, yep, yeah, that's fine. I'll send it off and I'll put a request for the MGP. I eventually got a letter and a call from my midwife. And the first day she called me, I hung up the phone and I just cried because she was so supportive. I hadn't even ever seen her face. It was purely just her voice. And I just felt so comforted and I felt so reassured and so ready. And I was only like 13 weeks pregnant by this time. And I was like, yes. I've got my midwife, all my ducks are lining up. I'm so ready for this. And so every time I saw my midwife, we'd talk about things and we'd go through it. And my midwife had said to me, I feel like you've got a whole lot going on still 
from your birth with Darcy and I feel like you've still got that very heavily sitting on your heart and so she referred me to the social worker at the hospital and so every time I had a midwife appointment I had an appointment with the social worker she asked me why I wanted a VBAC so desperately and I said to her I've got this birth that I had with Darcy which it wasn't horrible birth what happened after was when things started going downhill but I said to her I just feel like Achieving a VBAC would be like building this little box and taking Darcy's birth and putting it inside this little box and being able to close the lid on it. But then if I wanted to revisit it, I could just open it back up again and just revisit it. It was like being able to just put it away, put it to bed and be like, I've forgiven that and we can move on now. And I didn't realise how important it was in healing Darcy's birth to... <laughs> I'm not going to cry. <laughs> I didn't realize how important it would be to healing Darcy's birth because it didn't happen. So now I'm still healing from both births, if that makes sense. Yeah. One thing that the social worker helped me with was to give me tips on how I could mentally prepare for what I was about to go through, particularly because it felt so, like, it felt so scary because I wanted it so, so bad. So I would, at nighttime, I had my little routine from 16 weeks maybe where I would, I'd sit on the ball because there was no way I was having another breech baby. I was going to ask you, what were the things that you were doing to try and prevent another breech positioning? Were you doing any spinning babies, things like that as well? My midwife was actually really, really knowledgeable in birthing positions and like preparing your body physically for a baby, opening up your pelvis, closing your pelvis, all those sorts of things. Every time I had appointments with her, she would teach me new exercises to do to help to prevent him being breech. I couldn't have asked for a better midwife she was so knowledgeable in everything VBAC and if she didn't know it she'd learn about it and then come back and she she would know about it then so my midwife appointments would be less about chit-chatting and she'd have me up on the bed in all these weird positions like maneuvering my body because we discovered that Lou was posterior I had gone to her and I said my baby is 100% head down I know he is because I know what a breech baby's like but he doesn't feel right And he was posterior, but he was laying with his back along my side, not along my back. So I can't remember what term they use, but for the better part of posterior. And then the nape of, is it the nape of his neck was facing my cervix and the rest of his head was facing up. And that's where he stayed. So I knew that Bub was posterior. Like, so we did spinning babies again, and she was giving me all of these exercises that we would do every night. I spent so much time lunging. Because I knew that for my VBAC to happen, I needed to get Bub in a better position. I would meditate. I would do birthing meditations. I would write in my journal every night (laughs) manifesting. I would do my exercises and I would spend a little bit of time on the ball every night from about, I think, like 30 weeks. Did you ever think about the idea of having a repeat cesarean say if you would have had a another breech baby that wouldn't turn or or had you entertained any thoughts of that I wasn't naive and I knew that there was a huge possibility that I could have a repeat cesarean and 
not just because physically my body couldn't do it or however labor progressed that perhaps maybe mentally I might get to a point where I just couldn't do it or didn't want to do it a big part of that was yes prepping myself that you know yes I really really want to have this back, but also because there are risks and because I am a human being maybe a c-section could be on the card so I was very prepared and I had said to my midwife all along I really want to be back but I'm not hell-bent if it means that either of us aren't going to be safe I think that preparing myself that was really important as well did the risk of uterine rupture at all concern you during that pregnancy and how did you come across that information each appointment whether with a doctor or with the midwife I was very vocal about having a VBAC and Each time we talked about the risks, I knew what the risks of me having a rupture were. I knew it was a small risk, but a risk nonetheless. They prepared me at the hospital more than anything. It never felt like they were telling me these risks to try and talk me out of it. It was purely just from an education standpoint. There was a point where they thought maybe I had gestational diabetes and they had said to me that if that was the case, because I had declined having the GD test. So we did like the one hour fasting test and that came back high. So then I had to go back and do the full GD test, but it was okay in the end. But they had prepared me and said that if you do have gestational diabetes, that the hospital policies wouldn't allow me to try for a VBAC. The doctor left and my midwife was like, nah, (laughs) she'll be right. (laughs) So yeah, I, I was prepared for the risk of rupture. And I knew what it was and I knew that if that is what happened, I would be ready to have a C-section. I wasn't, I wasn't going to put myself or the baby at risk Mm. for the purpose of having a VBAC. Yeah. Did you feel supported in your quest for a VBAC? Did people know that that was your plan? Uh, Everybody knew that was my plan. (laughs) Um, My husband was really supportive. I think there were a few people close to me who, not because they didn't want me to do it, but purely because they were worried that probably had their doubts. The general consensus these days is once a C-section, always a C-section, and it's rare to ever meet somebody who's had a VBAC. Unless you're looking for research on it, like we do when we're VBAC passionate, you don't really know that that's an option because doctors do tend to push for a repeat cesarean and so I think the people close to me it was more just that they didn't have education on what it was and so once I explained how low the risk was of doing it and why it was important to me it would sort of get people back on board and you know it was more just that they were worried for my safety more than anything and the baby as well of course. How did you feel towards the end of Lewis's pregnancy? Were there any other complications before you reached the end of that pregnancy? Or I was... (laughs) (laughs) He had completely depleted me of my iron stores. Oh, I had this too. For some reason, the hospital just were not giving in on giving me a transfusion. They just were not giving in. So I was at zero, like I had nothing left or no iron. I was just, I couldn't even get up off the floor most of the time. I'd just lay on the floor playing cards with Darcy. I was just so exhausted all the time. And my midwife did every test she could under the sun. We knew it was iron, but she's like, 
you know, maybe it's your magnesium, maybe it's your thyroid, maybe it's this. So she tested for everything. I can't fault her. But they just did not want to give me a transfusion. And frustratingly, I see all of these pregnant women just like getting a transfusion here, there and everywhere. And I'm like, well, I did not get one. I could have been so much happier. Because I don't know about this too much. Can I ask why there is a reluctance to give an iron transfusion to pregnant women in your, in your hospital, I suppose? Or My sense was just that because it's a public hospital, that it felt to me just like it costs money. Like, I, I don't mm. know. So I just struggled through my pregnancy with no iron and no energy and felt like, yeah, <laughs> a bag of poo. It's really hard, yeah, especially when you have a toddler to look after. It's mm-hmm. very, yeah, very hard at that stage. It was, it was really hard. So at 38 weeks, my prodromal labour started. I didn't know this was a thing. Uh, it is absolutely a thing. So I went into labour and my contractions got to three in, in 10 minutes, six times from 38 weeks. And I was constantly having contractions and constantly going into labour. After about the third time it had happened, I had an appointment with my midwife and I just couldn't stop crying. And I said to her, I'm just, I'm tired. I have had barely any sleep my whole pregnancy. My iron is so low. I've got no energy. And now I keep going into labor, labor. And she just kept saying to me, it's just prodromal labor. It's very normal. It just means that your body's getting ready. And I kept saying to her, but my body's going to be tired. If this keeps up, like I'm going to be tired by the time I even get to labor. So I'm 38 weeks thinking like, oh, this is ending soon. It did not end soon. (laughs) So I had prodromal labor for two weeks. It was a couple of days before Lou was born and I had an appointment with my midwife and I walked in after a whole night of contractions, a whole night of, I think that the closest they were together was like a minute and a half. They were really, really close together. And I went into her and I said, I need you to check me. I need you to tell me if I'm dilated at all because I just need that boost of this is going somewhere. And she checked me and she couldn't even get to my cervix. She was like, there is nothing happening down there, Zara. It is it is sealed shut. You are not going anywhere. And I just cried. I just, I felt like I had just been so defeated And it was just starting to play on my mind that like I wasn't strong enough anymore, that I just didn't have the mental ability to keep going with it. And I started to get really down on my body. Like, why aren't you doing anything? You're going into labor. Why aren't you doing anything? So I had this moment of clarity where I thought he's still posterior and he's still not in a good spot, which means that his head can't come down. So maybe if I can just turn him, maybe it might get things going a little bit more. I lived on that ball. I did exercises for hours and hours and hours every day at 40 weeks exactly on my due date. I woke up and I was having contractions and the first thing that crossed my mind was just like, meh, meh, I'll believe it when I see it. And I'm like, nobody has their babies on their due dates anyway. So like totally not going to be today. (laughs) 
I think I said to my husband, I'm having contractions. His dad was living here at the time. And I said, I'm having contractions, but whatever. I think we might just have a shower because they are getting a little bit painful, but I don't want you to think that this is really happening because like we know where we've gone with labor for the last two weeks. So let's just chill. It was nice to be in the shower. And then I thought, oh, like we don't have a bath. And all I wanted to be doing was laying down and I didn't want to be standing anymore. So as I've hopped out the shower, it's got quite a high ledge and you have to like actually step over. As I've stepped over, I've just felt this little like gush. And I was like, oh, okay, that's odd. And then looked down and it was like a pinkish discharge. And I'm like, oh, I think my water's just broken. So I've gone out to Bryce and I'm like, I think my water just broke. And he's like, oh, okay, so we're having a baby today. So then I start getting really excited. By 11 o'clock, it was gone. Everything had stopped. And I'd called my midwife and I told her, it was only a little bit of my water though. It wasn't a gush like I was expecting. And she said, look, because of our policies, you've called, you've said your waters are broken. We need to test to make sure that it is your waters because if it is, then we need to talk about how we're going to progress because your water's breaking means that things probably need to start happening soon. So at like two o'clock, we went up there and they checked and it was my water. And she said, look, you can go home now and you can think about what you'd like to do. Things have stopped and then pop back a little bit later this afternoon and we can, you know, send you home with some antibiotics and whatever else. So I was like, yeah, okay, we'll go home. So we walked out the hospital doors and I got this massive contraction and I was like, okay, maybe we're starting again. So we went, got some dinner, went home, kept contracting. And then it got to about 10 o'clock and I was just tired. I just was, I was just felt like I, I, my mind was starting to stop like that strength that I had, I was losing it. And I said to Bryce, I think I need to go up to the hospital. I think I just want to be in the presence of other people like I think I just want to be like at the hospital where I know I'm safe and I know that they can help me if I need help like so we went up to the hospital before she checked me she said if I check you that means that you will have to have antibiotics and we do need to make a decision very quickly about what happens next because your waters have broken there's a risk for an infection and so she checked me I was two centimeters and I was just broken and she said I think that the best course of action would be to have some pain relief tonight, pop into bed, have a good rest. And then in the morning, if things aren't picking up, we can augment the labor and we can see if we can get things to move a little bit. How did you feel about the augmentation of labor? Because we know some hospitals won't give syntocin on because of feedback. It does increase the risk of uterine rupture slightly, but this hospital, obviously they were okay with that they had that sort of policy in place right so I sort of was hesitant about it and then my midwife said to me look I understand why you're hesitant but one of the reasons why I'm insisting you do this is because the doctor on call in the morning is very pro VBAC and pro that birth plan and she's also a really phenomenal doctor she said I know the other doctors here might get to a point where they'll be pushing like because now I'm on the clock 
because I'm at the hospital, she's saying, this doctor won't be looking at you as a ticking clock, whereas I know some of the other doctors would. So she said, I know that if you do this and you have that doctor tomorrow, then you'll have more time to have your V back and they won't, and she won't be pushing a cesarean on you. Mm. So that's what we did. She, it's a bit fuzzy, but it wasn't, I, I don't think it was a full dose of Syntocin, if that makes sense. Like they yeah. gave me a very, very light dose because by the morning, so they gave me morphine, which I would, wouldn't ever do again. <laughs> it was a horrible experience in my opinion. The whole day, the next day started abruptly and stressfully. A midwife came bursting into my room at 5am. So they said, they sent my husband home and they said, we'll start the augmentation at seven. So come back at seven. She burst into my room at 5am and mind you, I'm high. Like I've had morphine and I've never had it before. And I was like in this dark room alone, having contractions on morphine, thinking like, I I don't even know how to get up to go to the toilet. Like I was a mess. And she burst into my room and all she screams at me is, you need to get your things and you need to go to birth suite too and just leaves. And I was like, what? (laughs) Well, I've packed up all my things and I've waddled my way around to birth suite too. And she said to me, sit down on the bed. And I'm like, what about about my husband? Have you called him? Have you told him? No, that's your job. She said in birth suite two, we wear purple and forced me into a gown. I had said to her, I'm starting to feel really nauseous. And she goes, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. We can sort that out and figure something out. So she attaches me to the drip to start an antibiotic because they wanted me to have antibiotics because I had been checked the night before. And I just kept saying to her, I'm feeling really nauseous. I'm feeling really nauseous. And she was just going about her business, doing whatever she needed to do to the point where I was so sick. I was so, so sick. And she just looked at me and she goes, oh, we've had a little bit of the spit up, have we? I'll go get you something. So she left me attached to a drip in the wall, hadn't showed me how to take it out, covered in my own puke and a full sick bag in front of me and left for 10 minutes. And I'm just sitting on the edge of the bed like, what do I do? Like, I don't know how to move. My husband came in and then she came back in and I just lost it. She just came in military blasting things at me. And I said, excuse me, you need to undo my drip and you need to take me to the bathroom so I can clean myself up. And she just kind of looked at me like, oh. And she goes, oh, will you just unplug it from the wall? And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that Instead of making sure I was okay, she was too busy going off to get me anti-nausea medication. That could have waited until I was cleaned up. And that was just the beginning of the vomiting that day. And I had my midwife come in not long after that. And I said to her, do not let her back in here. And she didn't enter the room again. Mm. And I just felt so anxious from the minute I walked into that birth suite. My confidence was just shot and I just... I just felt feel like it was just a downhill slope. They started the syntocin and I just vomited the next few hours. You weren't in labour for very long with Darcy, but do you have any comparison between that early labour with Darcy and this 
early labour with Lewis? It was really different with Lou. I feel like the contractions were even different. So with Darcy, they started like period pain and it would just move up my belly in a tightening. With Lou, it wasn't like that. It started in my back and it would move around my belly. And I think now that maybe that was because of this positioning, he was... Posterior. Mm. Yeah. So they did the Syntocin at around seven and then they checked to see how far along I was at, I want to say, around about nine, and I was four centimetres. And my midwife said to me, look, we had spoken about having an epidural, and I wasn't against having an epidural. If I felt like I needed it, I was totally happy to go ahead and have one. Obviously, it was ideal not to, but under the circumstances, she said to me, look, Sarah, you're, you're really tired. We've been going for over 24 hours now. You're only four centimetres you're very sick and you need a little bit of rest because she said you've still got a really long road ahead of you like you've still got to push the baby out and she said like obviously it's up to you you don't need to have an epidural if you don't want to but we would normally wouldn't do it until you were six centimeters but because of the circumstances if you want one we can organize one for you now and I was like yeah give it to me I want to rest I'm tired and so she said to me how about you hop in the shower and you can be in the shower until the epidural comes and not long after that my water actually broke <laughs> so <laughs> that was an experience it was like the whole gush and uh, she said okay well now's a good time for you to probably get into the shower they attached the um head monitor on Lou what, what do they call that the Fetal um, scalp and, monitoring for his heart rate. Yes, that's right. And she said, would you like to have some gas in the shower? Because at this point, apart from the morphine, which had all but worn off, I'd had no pain really that morning. And I was like, yeah, all right, let's try the gas. So we went into the shower and they gave me the portable gas, which I guess I was still, maybe I was still trying to get the hang of, or maybe it wasn't entirely working, but the shower was a lot. My contractions really picked up to the point where I was like, okay, where's this epidural now? Like in between contractions, kind of laughing like, huh, if I don't laugh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this because these contractions are getting really, really bad. And so you still connected to the drip as well, the yeah. Syntocin. Um, so you were able to shower and have the drip as well. In, I could um, only stand in one very specific spot because it couldn't be near the um, IV monitor and because the scalp clip was on. So I could only stand in one spot, but it just enough to have the water on my back. And the contractions started getting really, really, really intense. And my husband saying to me, like, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't know. Like between contractions. And I by this time I'd started like really groaning through them. I was just standing in the shower and the, the anesthetist came to the door and I was like, oh, thank God you're here. And she's like, yeah, it's probably going to be another 45 minutes. Like that's how long it takes for the procedure. And I'm starting to think to myself, like, how am I going to sit through an epidural while my contractions are like this? And I'm trying to get the gas to work. Nothing was relieving these contractions. And eventually they were ready to do the epidural and I was sitting on the side of the bed and I finally got the gas to work. <laughs> and I said to, said to the midwife, I was like, 
I don't think that gas in there's working because I'm feeling it now and it wasn't working before. So they did the epidural, which took a really, really long time. And it was a not somebody training, but she didn't seem overly experienced. And she was putting in the line for my for the epidural. And the words, oh dear, came out of her mouth. And my husband's looking at her. He, he was facing her. And he goes, oh, dear, what do you mean, oh, dear? Why are you saying, oh, dear? And so she's started explaining to him that she's tried to put the line in and the saline's all squirted back on her. So it wasn't attached properly. And he's like, I don't care, just fix it. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) She's incompetent by the themes of it. And then it took a really long time. Like I kept saying to them, no, like I'm still feeling my contractions. I'm still feeling it. And then, you know, we're sort of going through the whole thing and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm still feeling my contractions. And eventually they got it all settled and they decided to check how far along I was and I was 10 centimetres. So the midwife was like, huh, perhaps maybe the shower might have been transition." Mm. And so we realised that while I was in the shower, this hectic experience that I was going through was transition and we put an epidural in and I was probably nine maybe even 10 centimeters dilated when they did the epidural and so they were like oh okay um cool we're gonna have to start pushing soon but we'll let you have some passive labor first my husband was watching the monitor and saying like kept saying to the midwife these contractions are on top of one another and she's asleep what are we doing why aren't we pushing why aren't we having a baby and I kind of woke up and I said to the midwife like oh I don't I pressed the epidural and I said I don't think the epidural was working because I'm like feeling quite uncomfortable on just just my left side so they checked the epidural and they got the anesthetist and they said, no, everything's fine. The epidural is working fine. And I was like, oh, okay, but uh, like I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable. They finally said it was time to start pushing after, I want to say maybe an hour of passive labor. So my husband's saying like, it felt like a lifetime. And he was confused because he's like, okay, 10 centimeters. Doesn't that normally mean mm. we're about to push a baby out? But they just kept saying, because you have an epidural, we like to let your body do part of the work. We pushed for maybe like 20 minutes and the doctor came in and she said, look, baby's in a really yuck position. He's stargazing and the nape of his neck is trying to come through. He can't get through. She said, I would like to book theatre because I don't think that this is going to happen but it's up to you. It's not urgent right now because he may move, but I want to flag with you that I think the best course of action right now is a C-section. She said, I'm going to take my negativity outside of the room and I'm going to let you decide. You can have a few more contractions and see how you feel. So she left. She came back and she tried to manipulate him during a contraction to see if she could turn him to come down and he just, he wasn't coming. Then I kept saying to them, like, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Is the epidural working? I'm feeling uncomfortable. 
And at the time it, it didn't, it didn't cross my mind that there was something going wrong. It just sort of felt like, it just felt like maybe I was feeling more of the contractions than I had been prior to when the epidural wasn't working, but the epidural was working. So the doctor came back in and she's like, look, I'm going to give you three more contractions. And if he's not out in three contractions, I'm taking you to theatre. Like I, this has been going on for too long. You've been pushing for an hour and 20 minutes or, you know, you've been at 10 centimetres for an hour and 20 minutes. She explained that the risk of rupture is higher when you're at 10 centimetres because your contractions are more intense. And she said that she was starting to get concerned that if we didn't get him out or if we didn't move to theatre, that I'm, I may rupture. She said, look, it might not be a C-section. We might be able to go and get him out instrumentally, you know, in theatre, but this is what I want you to think about. You can have three more contractions. So I got up on all fours on the bed and I was sort of like sitting up on my knees and I started to push and this wave of pain came over me and I just thought this something's not right here and I turned around and I said to them I think something's wrong and I don't, I don't want to push anymore I think something's wrong I think you need to get a doctor to come and check. And so another doctor, not my doctor, another doctor came in and she felt my scar and it was excruciating pain. She pushed down on it and it was excruciating pain. And she said, you've ruptured and we need to go. Like there was no, there's no second guessing. It was just like, oh, everybody just started running. Everybody was just then went into panic mode um, and I, I just couldn't stop crying because all I could think was like, it was nearly over and I was about, to, about to be done. And all I could think was, I've got eight weeks of healing to do now and everything flashed before my eyes and it just, I just felt so defeated and I just kept saying, no, no, I don't, I don't want to go yet. I don't want to go yet. And she said, well, we really need to go. And I said, I'm, ha I'm happy for you to do a C-section. I just really need a minute because I was ready to meet my baby now. And by the time they wheeled me to the theatre and they were trying to up my epidural to start the procedure I was kind of in just in the middle of nowhere like in a waiting bay and the pain was so incredible and even though I had an epidural they kept telling me that it works on different pain receptors so the pain receptors that an epidural hits don't work the same for the rupture so I felt every bit of it and I just had two midwives holding me and telling me to breathe and my husband wasn't there yet. He was getting gowned up and I was just scared. I, I felt more pain than I've ever felt in my life and it just felt like everybody had a job to do and nobody was paying attention to the fact that I was 
falling apart in front of them and that I was terrified. And eventually the anaesthetist, she sorted it out and it took a really long time to do whatever she needed to do and she couldn't, couldn't get it to work. And I kept saying to her when she was putting the ice on me, she, I kept, she said, can you feel that? And I said, yes, like cold from the freezer. I can feel it. Like it's not whatever you've done, it hasn't worked. And this is in between contractions that are, you know, less than a minute apart. And every time I had a contraction, my rupture would, it would, the pain would just be excruciating. And she eventually sorted it out and they took me into the theatre room. And I vomited every five minutes for my entire, my entire C-section. And the shaking I know the shaking is really normal in the C-section, but I was at the point where my arms were like levitating. I couldn't, my, my, my whole upper half of my body was like off the table shaking. And I kept saying to the, to the anaesthetist, like, I need you to make this stop. Like, I just need a, a minute of not shaking because it was getting too much and I couldn't calm myself down. And it didn't even feel like I was there having a baby. It just felt like stress and I was scared and I was frustrated to the point where she would up my epidural, then the shaking would start. So she would give me pain relief to stop the shaking and then she would give me anti-nausea and that was like a 10-minute cycle, the whole procedure. It got to the point where I swore at her and I said, you need to sort this the F out because I cannot do this anymore. And she said, your two choices are you either man up and sit through it or I put you under. And I said, you can't, you can't do that to me. You can't put me under. So Lou was born and... They pulled him out and they had the curtain too far up and I couldn't see him. I couldn't talk enough to say, like, can't see him. And there was this lovely scrub nurse who had been my little vomit buddy the whole time. And, and <sighs> right before I'd vomit every time, he just would must have known and he'd have a bag there and he'd be suctioning vomit out of my mouth. He heard me like whimpering because I couldn't talk loud enough. I, my jaw was locked from shaking and he pulled the curtain down and he said, she can't see anything. So I got like a five second glimpse. And then they brought Lou over to me and they laid him next to me and I needed to vomit. So I asked them if they could move him. There's a picture of when Darcy came over to me after the C-section and there's Bryce and me and Darcy is like right by my face. And we all just look really happy and there's tears in our eyes. And that picture of when Lou was born, oh, I see is scared. And it makes me feel really sad. Anyway, they, they stayed for a while. They had Lou because he was okay. And they had him in there for a little while. But the repair, the closure took longer because at some point during labor or during the procedure they nicked my bladder and so I had about a three centimeter nick on my bladder that they needed to repair at the same time so closing me up took 
quite a long time. So eventually my midwife and Bryce took Lou over to recovery to wait for me. And once they'd finished the surgery, it was just me and two surgeons left in the room. Everybody else had cleared out by this time and they pulled down the curtain and all I could see was her eyes behind the mask and just blood all over, all over her. And she must have seen the frightened look on my face. And she said to me, it's okay. You're okay. I probably should have just taken all of this off before you saw me, but it's okay. You're all right. You've lost a lot of blood, but you're going to be okay. And the lovely scrub nurse who had been by my side the whole time was the only person in during the whole time apart from my husband who made eye contact with me. And I know that's because it was a life-threatening situation and I know everybody just had a job to do. But as they were wheeling me out, I wanted to say thank you and I couldn't, couldn't call out to him to say thank you. And I just started crying because I was like, oh, you were the only person who treated me like a real human being laying there. So I got wheeled out and I went to recovery and Lou was waiting there for me. So I got to have him and have our first feed. He had his first feed on me. But when they handed him to me, I was still really shaky and I was still very stressed from the whole situation. So I held him quickly and I gave him a quick feed and then I just asked if Bryce would hold him again because I just felt still very jittery and shaky. The doctor, the surgeon came to talk to me and asked if I wanted to, if they could give me a rundown of the surgery. And I wasn't ready to hear any of it at the time. It just all seemed too real and raw that I just, I knew that things didn't go good and I just wasn't ready to hear any of it yet. And I said to her, if it's okay, can you come back tomorrow, you know, and give me some time to just process it all and come back tomorrow. And that's what she did. She came back the next day and we went through the whole thing afterwards. But yeah, he was with me then. He got wheeled back to the room with me in recovery. And I remember being in the elevator and as they were waiting for the elevator, I was holding on to Lou and there was an elderly lady who was like, oh, what a miracle. Congratulations. He's so beautiful. And I just, I was just angry because I didn't want to have to be sitting there in front of the elevator in a bed being wheeled back to my room. I didn't want any of it. It just hit me then that I didn't I didn't get what I came there for and I felt like this big wound still open and it was it just felt like I didn't know how I was going to move on if I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve you know it meant so much to me the next day the surgeon came and she said to me Zara you can't you can't do that again um if you decide to have any more children, you you can't you can't try for a vaginal birth. It's just not not going to happen. She said you've got to wait at least two years before you even think about having another baby. And there's no. I said I'll just go to another hospital, jokingly. And she said there's not a doctor in Australia who would let you do that. And 
I don't know, I guess it was that moment that I was like, in a way, Lou's birth was healing in that, you know, all but right away, I got to hold him and have a, my first feed with him and he didn't leave my side after that. But I still have this like gaping hole that I still really, really, I just feel like something's been taken away from me that I'm, I can't now, I can't have a vaginal birth. I'm not allowed to. You know, you, you lost the 800 mil of blood in the surgery when they were getting Lewis out. How does that work when there's a uterine rupture as opposed to the standard cesarean? Had you ruptured part of your uterus or had the scar remained intact? So they explain things in layman's terms and then I got my discharge notes and I stupidly read them and I I shouldn't have I should have just thrown the letter in the bin from what I understand they cut sort of around my old scar but the rupture was purely on my uterus so on the left side of my uterus after having Darcy it niggled for like months and months and months and months like I want to say the first year I was so well and truly aware of my scar on the left side and it had never occurred to me that that's that there was anything wrong I just thought like you know oh I'd had major surgery like they cut through six layers of my body like of course of course it's going to be niggly and that's the exact spot where I ruptured so I just wonder if perhaps when they did my first C-section that when they sewed up my uterus that it just wasn't quite as... It, it could have been a, a sensitive area that hadn't completely healed from the first yeah. birth or, yeah, a thinner part or they took about sort of scar thickness and thinness. Yeah. And I wonder if... So I ended up with a catheter for 15 days, I think, post my surgery because of the bladder um, injury. I had to have like a um, a CT and a special scan that they do to make sure your bladder function is back. Yeah, that's really hard to have, to have that as well um, post yeah. the birth. You mentioned you had the epidural. Was it sort of a, a lower dose because you were able to get on all fours at, um, yeah. on the bed? Was that sort of a, a lower dose of epidural? Yeah. Um, it was really important to me to still be able to move around. I didn't want to, even though... For most of my labour, I was in bed because I was physically so unwell. I had really bad nausea. I still wanted, when it came time for pushing, I still wanted to be able to get up on all fours or be in a position that felt more natural than just legs up and stirrups, mm. I guess. It wasn't easy to, to get into those positions, but... Yeah. Another question on my mind was the scalp, you know how the scalp monitor was on baby's head? That was showing that baby was okay. Lou was all right. Was his heart rate yeah. showing any D cells at the time, at the point that they were taken to theatre or was he, was he looking good? So Lou was good the whole time. There were maybe two times when I had the epidural in that his heart rate went down, but they would just kind of shuffle me onto the other side and he would move a little bit and then his heart rate would go back up. So I think it was more to do with his, like my positioning than him being in actual distress. So by the time we got to 
theatre, he was happy and healthy and just didn't want to come out, I guess. <laughs> Changed his mind halfway through. <laughs> He mm. came out and he didn't need any oxygen or anything. He had no mm. fluid. He was he was yeah, perfectly healthy when he came out. Where was your midwife through all of this? So the midwife that you'd had throughout this pregnancy was was she there in theatre while any of this was going on? Or so she was in theatre. She was supporting Bryce, and I guess she did say to me after we had Lou, she came for a home visit, and she said like obviously being very traumatic I had a couple of appointments at the hospital with the birthing team and the surgeon and they were a good support afterwards like they really did take time to make sure Bryce and I were coping and we were doing okay after everything so she came by and she said look we've been reflecting on your birth like as as the team and she said when you had your epidural and you were at 10 centimetres, it was actually the wrong thing for us to let you have passive labour. We should have had you pushing right away and we didn't know that at the time, but we know that now. She apologised. She said, you know, we just didn't know. We thought we were doing the right thing and we just didn't know. And she said that she'd gone and done some more research and that she was doing like some extra courses or whatever she was doing on VBACs which is good so that mistake I guess made her go all right I need to learn more about it. Breastfeeding go well this time it was was it a different journey for you? Um, Not really actually we mastitis again. Same issues with mastitis with Lou. He was a bit Mm. of feeder than Darcy and it got to eight weeks with him. My husband actually works away he travels frequently and I just sort of got to the point where I was like, why am I doing this? I had gone through, I, I, I think I calculated it at the time and it was like, you know, 300 and almost an entire year of having somebody depend on my body. And I was so much more at peace this time, just going, no, you know what? Like, I think my body has suffered enough. And after, I think I got mastitis twice. And I just was like, no, we did eight weeks. I'm calling it. And I I was so at peace with my decision this time because it just felt like, oh, after everything we had been through Mm. and having that help with Bryce being able to help me at nights and get my body back and really start to heal properly. Yeah, it was amazing. We had eight amazing weeks of breastfeeding and, you know, it was much more pleasant this time. But it was just a matter of, just I'm just ready for my body back and I'm just ready to heal and you know heal my mind and you know find space for things that bring me joy again I'm just have breastfeeding's just it doesn't bring me the same joy that it does some women you know some women love it and some women like me I just I didn't enjoy it and we're just happy as ever cruising along doing yeah. everything such a sweet little dude oh gorgeous that's gorgeous thank you so much for sharing that and just being for being honest because yeah it, it is a different journey for everyone and that's so good I'm glad that you felt peace of mind when your breastfeeding journey was over how did you feel 
yeah, I mean, obviously it sounds like the debrief process in the hospital was a lot better than your first birth. At that stage, how were you feeling, you know, in terms of before you went home, how were you mentally and physically feeling? Recovery for the second C-section was a whole lot better. I don't know whether it's just that your body knows like that healing process or whether I just was easier on myself the second time around and I think I just I just had this like in my brain I was like you're not gonna let this beat you like you've had to have a c-section but it won't beat you you're not gonna let it be like last time it's gonna be okay now and so I just set my mind at healing and not not being healed but healing whereas I feel like with Darcy I was thinking more about being healed like I just want to feel better I just want to feel better and you skip over the healing part there's this time I was just easier on my body and just took more time took it slower and really just like we just really sat in those feelings of the birth a whole lot as well me and my and my husband because obviously that was a really stressful time for him as Mm -hmm. well and he said to me after we got back to the room and once everything had calmed down and everybody had left he said to me we will talk about this for as long as you need to because that was that was a lot and as long as you need to talk about this and as long as you need to reflect on it I'm I'm here and I'm listening and we have since then you know like I have days where I feel um unraveled by the birth and what happened and angry and he's he's been a good support in just listening and you know letting me get my feelings out about it my anger and my my desire to still want to be back (laughs) that's so great that he's open to hearing you whenever you're feeling like you need to chat about it uh have you thought about doing anything else like seeing a professional about uh, talking about the trauma yeah yeah definitely Mm. that's in the works right now it's really 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 hard at the moment with mental health to actually see anybody the Mm. wait lists are incredibly long the hospital offered for me to see somebody up there but the wait list for mental health at the hospital is just like it it was quicker to see somebody privately um and even then the wait lists are you know two three months long so just still waiting for my first appointment there but yeah definitely feel like I've still got work to do in unpacking Lou's birth it's still um uh, I have to be completely honest I haven't listened to many of your podcasts since because it's just really it's too hard to hear um but I feel like I need to find some sort of peace with what happened I thought that after having Lou, I'd be like, I'm so done, never again, no. Nope. Mm-hmm. But I've just, like, I've started processing in a way that I think I could have a healing cesarean birth. If we decided to have a third, that mm. that could be my healing birth. Not that we've decided we're having any more, but instead of looking at it as the end of the line, as, you know, that a cesarean would be the worst option in the world that perhaps it could be a healing experience and I've been doing like looking into stories of women who have had really healing cesareans 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that helping me in a way to process the fact that I won't ever be able to experience a vaginal birth because mm-hmm. I guess that's super disappointing. And it's not until you have babies that you realise how powerful the desire to do that is. And I didn't think that I would have such a, a strong desire for a vaginal birth, but I still do. And if I if I had the chance, I would do it all over again. I really would. I, you know, if somebody said to me, "All right, you can try for a V back again," I 100% would. I I really would. Because I think you know, if somebody had told me that what happened with Lou would happen, I feel like I would still have that desire to try. Zara, I just wanted to know if what you would say to women out there listening who are concerned about rupture. Um, I think that you just need to know the risk and, and that's the biggest thing. You know, like I can sit here and say that it's a low risk of rupture and it is. It is such a small percentage of women who do rupture but you can't go into it blindly thinking that it won't happen to you because it very well could. But having said that, it also can't be the thing that scares you off because if, if you were scared of every anything to do with pregnancy, you would never have babies, right? Mm. You know? And at the end of the day, as long as you're walking into it with an open mind, I think that there's every chance of succeeding and you just have to listen to the other women on your podcast who have had successful VBACs that you know, there's every chance that you will succeed and as long as you know your risks and as long as you know what to look for if a rupture was happening, then, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't try. Like all of those women who have achieved their VBACs gave me this huge sense of hope that it, that it would happen and, you know, I'm just that tiny little percentage of women that unfortunately it just didn't work out this was from February Zara so you wrote this in February and I was just wondering if you still feel the same way and you said although my birth did not turn out how I'd hoped I'm grateful I'm grateful that I prepared myself for this happening I researched and I knew the risks of my birth I spent time bringing peace to another c-section if that's how my birth were to end. I'm grateful that the doctors and midwives held space for my desires and were firm in their approach when things went south. I'm grateful to still be here and I'm grateful that Lewis was happy and healthy the whole way through. And I just thought that was a really, you know, important kind of message to give after your experience, a powerful message. And I just wondered if you you've had any more thoughts about that since February or you feel the same way today? Yeah, I'm, I do still feel the same way. It's interesting because sometimes I'll see something or, or hear something that triggers um, certain feelings about my birth, but on the whole, I, I certainly do feel that way. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative of you, Zara, coming on to share your experience with us. You know, your story is really important for our listeners to hear, um, I think. And you've had a feedback journey, you know, of your own. And I, I hope that by you sharing your story with us, that it, it provides you some comfort as well. When you say that, like, it, it felt like after having Lou, you know, it felt like 
it was my responsibility to share my story and be open about it because I feel like so many women feel like they just need to close off on their births and keep it to themselves and that birth trauma just really isn't openly spoken about and it should be so it felt like my responsibility to be open about it and say like it's okay to feel any way that you're feeling after after a traumatic birth but you know to have a space where women would come and speak to me if they felt like they needed to share and I have had a lot of women come and share their experiences with me over Instagram so it's been amazing to share because it does give women that confidence to open up even some women you know had their babies 10 years ago who have reached out to me and said that they're still struggling with trauma from their birth so you know I think it's important to be talked about just wanted to say a big thank you as well and I know how hard it can be to revisit some of those difficult moments in birth but I know that a lot of women um, will be very grateful to you for sharing this story, particularly women who, who do have to go down the repeat cesarean route. And um, it's really important for them to hear these stories as well. You know, we're just really grateful f- for you to share that sort of, it's a very personal moment in your life and a very important moment. Um, and we wanted to thank you for being so open with that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to this VBAC story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for VBAC Birth Stories. If you have a question or you'd like to express interest in sharing your personal story, email us at vbackbirthstories at gmail.com. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.